0: Christmas Reunion by Andrew Caldicott 1. I cannot explain what exactly it is about him, but I don't like your Mr. Clarence, love, and I'm sorry that you ever ask him to stay. Thus Richard Drayton to his wife Eleanor on the morning of Christmas Eve. But one must remember the children, Richard. You know what marvellous presents he gives them. Much too marvellous, he spoils them, "'Yet you'll have noticed that none of them likes him. "'Children have a wonderful intuition in regard to the character of grown-ups. "'What on earth are you hinting about his character? "'He's a very nice man.' "'Drayton shuffled off his slippers in front of the study fire "'and began putting on his boots. "'I wonder, darling, whether you noticed his face just now at breakfast "'when he opened that letter with the Australian stamps on. "'Yes, he did seem a bit upset.' but not more so than you when you get my dressmaker's bill. Mrs. Drayton accompanied this Sally with a playful pat on her husband's back as he leant forward to do up his laces. Well, Eleanor, all that I can say is that there's something very fishy about his Antipodean history. At five-and-twenty he left England, a penniless young man, and, hey presto, he returns a stinking plutocrat at twenty-eight. And how? "'What he's told you doesn't altogether tally with what he's told me, "'but cutting out the differences. "'His main story is that he duly contacted old Nelson Joy, "'his maternal uncle, whom he went out to join, "'and that they went off together prospecting for gold. "'They struck it handsomely, "'and then the poor old uncle gets a heart-stroke "'or paralysis or something in the bush "'and bids Clarence leave him there to die "'and get himself out before the food gives out. "'Arrived back in Sydney,' Clarence produces a will under which he is the sole beneficiary, gets the court to presume old Joy's death, and bunks back here with the loot. Mrs. Drayton frowned. I can see nothing wrong or suspicious about the story, she said, but only in your telling of it. No, no, in his telling of it. "'He never gets the details quite the same twice running, "'and I'm certain that he gave a different topography "'to their prospecting expedition this year "'from what he did last. "'It's my belief that he did the uncle in, poor old chap. "'Don't be so absurd, Richard, "'and please remember that he's our guest.' "'and that we must be hospitable, especially at Christmas.' "'Which reminds me, on your way to office, "'would you mind looking in at Harridge's "'and making sure that they haven't forgotten our order "'for their Santa Claus tomorrow? "'He's to be here at seven, "'then go up to the Simpsons at seven-thirty, "'and to end up at the Joneses at eight. "'It's lucky our getting three households "'to share the expenses. Harridge's charge each of us only half their catalogued fee. "'If they could possibly send us the same Father Christmas "'as last year, it would be splendid. "'The children adored him.' Don't forget to say, too, that he will find all the crackers, hats, musical toys and presents inside the big chest, in the hall, just the same as last year. What should we do nowadays without the big stores? One goes to them for everything. We certainly do, Drayton agreed, and I can't see the modern child putting up with the amateur Father Christmas we used to suffer from. I shall never forget the annual exhibition Uncle Bertie used to make of himself, or the slippering I got.' when I stuck a darning-needle into his behind under the pretense that I wanted to see if he was real. Well, so long, old girl. No, I won't forget to call in at Heridge's. 2. By the time the festive Christmas supper had reached the dessert stage, Mrs. Drayton fully shared her husband's regret that she had ever asked Clarence Love to be of the party. The sinister change that had come over him on receipt of the letter from Australia became accentuated on the later arrival of a telegram which, he said, would necessitate his leaving towards the end of the evening to catch the 815 northbound express from King's Pancras. His valet had already gone ahead with the luggage and, as it had turned so foggy, he had announced his intention of following later by underground in order to avoid the possibility of being caught in a traffic jam. It is strange how sometimes the human mind can harbour simultaneously two entirely contradictory emotions. Mrs. Drayton was consumed with annoyance that any guest of hers should be so inconsiderate as to terminate his stay in the middle of a Christmas party, but was, at the same time, impatient to be rid of such a skeleton at the feast. One of the things that she had found attractive in Clarence love had been an unfailing fund of small talk which, if not brilliant, was at any rate bright and breezy. He possessed also a pleasant and frequent smile, and, till now, had always been assiduous in his attention to her conversation. Since yesterday, however, he had turned silent, inattentive, and dour in expression. His presentation to her of a lovely emerald brooch had been unaccompanied by any greeting beyond an unflattering and perfunctory Happy Christmas! He had also proved unforgivably oblivious of the mistletoe, beneath which, with a careful carelessness, she stationed herself when she heard him coming down to breakfast. It was indeed quite mortifying, and when her husband described the guest as a busted balloon, she had neither the mind nor the heart to gainsay him. Happily for the mirth and merriment of the party, Drayton seemed to derive much exhilaration from the dumb discomfiture of his wife's friend— and Eleanor had never seen or heard her husband in better form. He managed, too, to infect the children with his own ebullience, and even Miss Potterby the governess reciprocated his fun. Even before the entry of Father Christmas it had thus become a noisy and almost rowdy company. Father Christmas's salutation on arrival was in rhymed verse, and delivered in the manner appropriate to pantomime. His lines ran thus, To sons of peace, Yule brings release from worry at this time, But men of crime this holy time their guilty heads need hide. So never fear, ye children dear, but innocent sing Noel, For the holy rude shall save the good, and the bad be burned in hell. This is my carol, and Noel my parole. There was clapping of hands at this, for there is nothing children enjoy so much as mummery, especially if it be slightly mysterious. The only person who appeared to dislike the recitation was Love, who was seen to stop both ears with his fingers at the end of the first verse and to look ill. As soon as he had made an end of the prologue, Santa Claus went ahead with his distribution of gifts and made many a merry quip and pun. He was quick in the uptake, too, for the children put him to many a poser, to which a witty reply was always ready. The minutes indeed slipped by all too quickly for all of them, except Love, who kept glancing uncomfortably at his wristwatch and was plainly in a hurry to go. Hearing him mutter that it was time for him to be off, Father Christmas walked to his side and bade him pull a farewell cracker. Having done so, resentfully it seemed, he was asked to pull out the motto and read it, His hands were now visibly shaking, and his voice seemed to have caught their infection. Very falteringly he managed to stammer out the two lines of doggerel. Reunited heart to heart, uh, uh, love and joy shall never part. "'And now,' said Father Christmas, "'I must be making for the next chimney, and on my way, sir, I will see you into the underground.' So saying, he took Clarence Love by the left arm and led him, with mock ceremony, to the door, where he turned and delivered this epilogue. Ladies and gentlemen, good night. Let not darkness you affright. Aught of evil here to-day. Santa Claus now bears away. At this point, with sudden dramatic effect, he clicked off the electric light switch by the door, and by the time Drayton had groped his way to it in the darkness and turned it on again, the parlour-maid, who was awaiting Love's departure in the hall, had let both him and Father Christmas out into the street. "'Excellent!' Mrs. Drayton exclaimed. "'Quite excellent! One can always depend on Harridge's. It wasn't the same man as they sent last year, but quite as good and more original, perhaps.' "'I'm glad he's taken Mr. Love away,' said young Harold. "'Yes,' Dorothy chipped in. "'He's been beastly all day, and yesterday too, "'and his presents aren't nearly as expensive as last year.' "'Shut up, you spoilt children!' the father interrupted. "'I must admit, though, that the fellow was a wet blanket this evening. "'What was that nonsense he read out about reunion?' Mrs. Potterby had developed a pedagogic habit of clearing her throat audibly as a signal demanding her pupils' attention to some impending announcement. She did it now, and parents as well as children looked expectantly towards her. The motto, as read by Mr. Love, she declared, was so palpably inconsequent that I took the liberty of appropriating it when he laid the slip of paper back on the table. Here it is, and this is how it actually reads.' "'Be united heart to heart, love and joy shall never part.' "'That makes sense, if it doesn't make poetry.' Mr. Love committed the error of reading "'Be united as reunited,' and of not observing the comma between the two lines. "'Ah, thank you, Miss Potterby. That, of course, explains it. How clever of you to have spotted the mistake and tracked it down.' Thus encouraged, Miss Potterby proceeded to further corrective edification, Uh, You remarked just now, Mr. Drayton, that the gentleman impersonating Father Christmas had displayed originality. His prologue and epilogue, however, were neither of them original, but corrupted versions of passages which you will find in Professor Borley's Synopsis of Nativity, Miracle and Morality plays, uh, published two years ago. I happen to be familiar with the subject, as the author is a first cousin of mine, uh, once removed. How interesting! Drayton here broke in. And now, Miss Potterby, if you will most kindly preside at the piano, we will dance Sir Roger de Coverley. Come on, children, into the drawing-room. Three. On Boxing Day there was no post and no paper. Meeting Mrs Simpson in the park that afternoon, Mrs Drayton was surprised to hear that Father Christmas had kept neither of his two other engagements. It must have been that horrid fog she suggested, but what a shame, he was even better than last year, by which intelligence Mrs. Simpson seemed little comforted. Next morning, the second after Christmas, there were two letters on the Drayton's breakfast-table, and both were from Harridge's. The first conveyed that firm's deep regret, that their representative should have been prevented from carrying out his engagements in Pentland Square on Christmas night owing to dislocation of traffic caused by the prevailing fog. "Uh, But he kept ours all right, Mrs. Drayton commented. I feel so sorry for the Simpsons and the Joneses. The second letter cancelled the first, which had been written in unfortunate oversight of the cancellation of the order. What on earth does that mean? Mrs. Drayton ejaculated. "'Ask me another,' returned her husband. "'Got their correspondence mixed up, I suppose.' In contrast to the paucity of letters, the morning newspapers seemed unusually voluminous and full of pictures. Mrs. Drayton's choice of what to read in them was not that of a highbrow. The headline that attracted her first attention ran "'Christmas on Underground.' and among other choice items she learned how at Pentland Street Station, their own nearest, a man dressed as Santa Claus had been seen to guide and support an invalid or possibly tipsy companion down the long escalator. The red coat, mask and beard were afterwards found discarded in a passage leading to the emergency staircase, so that even Santa's sobriety might be called into question. She was just about to retail this interesting intelligence to her husband, when, laying down his own paper, he stared curiously at her and muttered, Good God! What on earth's the matter, dear? A very horrible thing, Eleanor. Clarence Love has been killed. Listen. Here he resumed his paper and began to read aloud. The body of the man who fell from the Pentland Street platform on Christmas night in front of an incoming train has been identified as that of Mr. Clarence love of eleven playfair mansions. There was a large crowd of passengers on the platform at the time, and it is conjectured that he fell backwards off it, while turning to expostulate with persons exerting pressure at his back. Nobody, however, in the crush, could have seen the exact circumstances of the said fatality. Hush, dear, here come the children. They mustn't know, of course— Uh, We can talk about it afterwards. Drayton, however, could not wait to talk about it afterwards. The whole of the amateur detective within him had been aroused, and rising early from the breakfast table he journeyed by tube to Harridge's, where he was soon interviewing a departmental sub-manager. No, there was no possibility of one of their representatives having visited Pentland Square on Christmas evening.' "'Our Mr. Droper had got hung up in the Shenton Street traffic block "'until it was too late to keep his engagements there. "'He had come straight back to his rooms. "'In any case, he would not have called Mr. Drayton's residence "'in view of the cancellation of the order the previous day. "'Not cancelled. "'But he took down the telephone message himself. "'Yes, here was the entry in the register. "'Then it must have been the work of some mischief-maker. "'It was certainly a gentleman's and not a lady's voice.' Nobody except he and Mr. Droper knew of the engagement at their end, so the practical joker must have derived his knowledge of it from somebody in Mr. Drayton's household. This was obviously sound reasoning, and on his return home, Drayton questioned Mrs. Timmins, the cook, in the matter. She was immediately helpful and forthcoming. One of them insurance gents had called on the morning before Christmas, and had been told that none of us wanted no policies or such like. He then turned conversational and asked what sort of goings-on there would be here for Christmas. Nothing, he was told, except our father Christmas, as usual, at a shop. Then he asked about the visitors in the house and was told, as there was none except Mr Love, who, judging by the tip what he had given Martha when he stayed last in the house, was a wealthy and open-handed gentleman. Little did she think when she spoke those words as Mr. Love would forget to give any tips or boxes at Christmas when they is most natural and proper, but perhaps he would think better on it by the new year and send a postal order. Drayton thought it unlikely, but deemed it unnecessary at this juncture to inform Mrs. Timmins of the tragedy reported in the newspaper. At luncheon Mrs. Drayton found her husband unusually taciturn and preoccupied, but by the time they had come to the cheese he announced importantly that he had made up his mind to report immediately to the police certain information that had come into his possession. Miss Potterby and the children looked suitably impressed, but knew better than to court a snub by asking questions. Mrs. Drayton took the cue admirably by replying, "'Course, Richard, uh, you-, you must do your duty.' Four. The inspector listened intently and jotted down occasional notes. At the end of the narration he complimented the informant by asking whether he had formed any theory regarding the facts he reported. Drayton most certainly had. That was why he had been so silent and absent-minded at lunch. His solution, put much more briefly than he expounded it to the inspector, was as follows. Clarence Love had abandoned his uncle and partner in the Australian bush, Having returned to civilization, got the courts to presume the uncle's death, and taken probate of the will under which he was the sole inheritor, love returned to England a wealthy and still youngish man. The uncle, however, this was Drayton's theory, did not die after his nephew's desertion, but was found and tended by bushmen. Having regained his power of locomotion, he trekked back to Sydney, where he discovered himself legally dead and his property appropriated by Love and removed to England. Believing his nephew to have compassed his death, he resolved to take revenge into his own hands. Having dispatched a cryptic letter to Love containing dark hints of impending doom, he sailed for the old country, and ultimately tracked Love down to the Drayton's abode. Then, Having, in the guise of a travelling insurance agent, ascertained the family's programme for Christmas Day, he planned his impersonation of Santa Claus. That his true identity, revealed by voice and accent, did not escape his victim, was evidenced by the latter's nervous misreading of the motto in the cracker. Whether Love's death in the underground was due to actual murder, or to suicide enforced by despair and remorse, Drayton hazarded no guess, Either was possible, under his theory. The inspector's reception of Drayton's hypothesis was less enthusiastic than his wife's. "'If uh, you'll excuse me, uh, Mr Drayton,' said the farmer, "'you've built a mighty lot on damn little. "'Still, it's ingenious and no mistake. "'I'll follow your ideas up, and if you call in a week's time, "'I may have something to tell you, "'and one or two things, perhaps, to ask.' "'Why, darling, how wonderful!' Mrs. Drayton applauded. Now that you've pieced the bits together so cleverly, the thing's quite obvious, isn't it? What a horrible thing to have left poor old Mr. Joyce die all alone in the jungle. I never really liked Clarence, and am quite glad now that he's dead. But of course, we mustn't tell the children. Inquiries of the Australian police elicited the intelligence that the presumption of Mr. Joy's death had been long since confirmed by the discovery of his remains in an old prospecting pit. There were ugly rumours and suspicions against his nephew, but no evidence on which to support them. On being thus informed by the inspector, Drayton amended his theory, to the extent that the impersonator of Father Christmas must have been not Mr. Joy himself, as he was dead, but a bosom friend, determined to avenge him. This substitution deprived the cracker episode, on which Drayton had imagined his whole story, of all relevance, and the inspector was quite frank about his disinterest in the revised version. Mrs. Drayton also rejected it. Her husband's original theory seemed to her more obviously right and conclusive even than before. The only amendment required—and that, on a mere matter of detail, was to substitute Mr. Joy's ghost for Mr. Joy, though of course one mustn't tell the children. But, her husband remonstrated, you know that I don't believe in ghosts. No, but your Aunt Celia does, and she is such a clever woman.' By the way, she called in this morning and left you a book to look at. A book? Yes, the collected ghost stories of M. R. James. But the stupid old dear knows that I have them all in original editions. So she said, but she wants you to read the author's epilogue to the collection, which she says is most entertaining. It's entitled, Stories I Have Tried to Write. She said that she'd sidelined a passage that might interest you. The book's on that table by you. No, not that. The one with the black cover. Drayton picked it up, found the marked passage, and read it aloud. There may be possibilities, too, in the Christmas cracker, if the right people pull it, and if the motto which they find inside has the right message on it. They will probably leave the party early, pleading indisposition, but very likely a previous engagement of long standing would be the more truthful excuse. There is certainly, Drayton commented, some resemblance between James's idea and our recent experience, but he could have made a perfectly good yarn out of that theme without introducing ghosts. His wife's mood at that moment was for compromise rather than controversy. Well, darling, she temporised, perhaps not exactly ghosts. (laughs) So that was Christmas Reunion by Andrew Caldicott. and it's actually from his collection, which I have a copy of, called uh, Not Exactly Ghosts, published in 1947. I got this. I've got this. I've got a series of British Library um, anthologies, and this one's called Chill Tidings: Dark Tales of the Christmas Season, edited by Tanya Kirk. Uh, and I must admit, I actually recorded this when I began recording it. I thought. Well, a Christmas Ghost story, so it's going to go on the classic Ghost Stories podcast, my other podcast. And then as I was getting into it, I thought, despite the end, the ghost thing at the end, it's not massively convincing. Although, or or is it? I mean, I suppose, uh, Caldicott, as Caldicott has Mrs. Drayton say, not exactly ghosts. It seemed to me, informed, to have much more to do with the the golden age of uh, detective stories, whereby a puzzle, there is a puzzle, there's lots of information a murder happens, and then at some point somebody clever works out, in this case Mr Drayton. I think it's, it has a slight twist in the end that it becomes unclear. The first thing is it's a straight detective story, and this is the, the uncle who's come back to gain his revenge, and then uh, it's found that the uncles remain, so it must have been a ghost. But it's not a, it's not a classic ghost story. It's so, it, it seemed to me, for what it's worth, to be a detective story. Even if the well as in many of detective stories from this this era the the detective is in fact an amateur so it's not a police procedure. Oh, somebody just bought something from my Etsy store. did you hear that? Um, maybe you didn't. I'm going to play that back. maybe I hallucinated it No, I didn't. um I've made a sale. I, I do hallucinate making sales on my Etsy store sometimes. I'm kind of like what was that a sale? was that a sale? And I rushed to it to find that it. it wasn't. it was just some jingling in the wind. Anyway, let me tell you about Sir Andrew Caldicott. I've done another story of his, just one on the Classic Ghost Stories podcast, which is called Lo- Branch Line to um, Branston, which is, um, again, not a classic ghost story, a kind of a weird story, but anyway. So, uh, he's a very illustrious man, Sir Andrew Caldicott. Born 1884, 1951, began writing ghost stories after retiring from the colonial civil service in 1944. He was born in Kent, the son of a clergyman, many writers are, and joined the Malayan civil service in 1907. During his long career, he held the governorships, this is a big deal, of Hong Kong and Ceylon, now Sri Lanka. He is credited for having helped to smooth the way for independence in Ceylon, which it attained in 1948. He published two volumes of ghost stories in 1947, which is this one we talked about, and not exactly ghosts, in 1948. His work is thought to be somewhat reminiscent of the great master of the genre, M. R. James. Not at all in this case. Christmas Reunion is actually based on the idea that James described in his essay, Stories I've Tried to Write, so that's a famous thing about James. He did, a, he did a, an essay called Stories I've Tried to Write and left um, uh, seeds for stories, and many people over the years have written those stories or attempted to, so this is the one about the Christmas cracker, as we hear. So um, I hope you're enjoying the Classic Detective Stories podcast. This is the first month, really, Uh, and we've had some guest narrators, as I said, so Jasper Lestrange of the Encrypted Horror has done that. I've got a friend of mine, an actor called uh, Ben Brinicum, who's going to be doing one, and I've been auditioning people via backstage. um, I want a kind of American male hard-boiled gumshoe. So I want this to be a different kind of, I want this to to be um, an opportunity for all sorts of narrators to uh, show their show their paces, you know, and and be there for your enjoyment. So that's that. Uh, it uh, it isn't just the same as the classic ghost stories, which is much, very much a one man band, really. Um, so that's it. So if you have a good voice and you like classic detective stories, get in touch with me at classic ghost stories. No, I'll give you the proper one: classic ghost podcast at gmail.com. No gaps, no dots, classic ghost podcast at gmail.com. So that's a call for narrators for people who are interested in narrating stories from the classic age of uh, detective fiction, whether it be American, um, British or anybody else of French. Yeah. Uh, some great stuff. I'd, I'd do a seminar one. Um and uh do you know what? I think it'd be better with somebody who who was French, okay, in English, but um somebody to do it who's authentically French, yeah. Okay. But up and above. No, no, no. What's Superman say? He puts his hand up and he says something. No, not per audio ad astra, with something like that. Anyway, I'm getting lost now. So okay, hope you enjoyed that. More to come. Please share. Please tell your friends that we there is another podcast called the Classic Detective Stories Podcast that they would enjoy. And um I we will tell you some more stories soon. Shhh. <sighs>